Hello and welcome to the Leaders Sport Business Podcast. I am David Cushnan and who are you please? Well I'm James Emmett, I'm your colleague and I'm talking to you from a remote location while you're over there in the studio in Leaders Towers. Indeed, but we have joined together by the magic of technology once again to uh, chew the fat over the sports industry uh, this week. Uh, Plenty to get our teeth into, and we'll get our teeth into it uh, shortly. Uh, First, though, James, how are you doing? We're uh, we're in the final stretch of uh, planning and delivery for our big event in India next week. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Thanks, David. Um, It's final week before an event delivery at Leaders, and you'd think it was a lot of, um, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's, but actually it's a lot of looking at the alphabet and seeing which bits of letters you can move across to make a different letter somewhere else. So is there an M somewhere that can attach this T to and try to make a big B? Um, it's that kind of thing that's going on at the moment, which is all fun and games, but it's shaping up to be a fantastic event. We've got um, BCCI royalty with us. Um, We've got all sorts of um, international sports leaders coming over, Premier League, Manchester United, DP World Tour, um, two circles, uh, and plenty more besides it's in Bangalore. It's going to be great. I think I might wear a linen suit. Yes, I was going to ask you about dress code. And I know you do own a linen suit, but I assume that would be first in the suitcase. Yes, I've got two, actually. Um, do you want to wear one? No, thank you. Okay. I'll, I'll bring my own clothes. Good to hear it. I'll bring the microphones so that we can do a podcast whilst we are out there. I, I think, think it's going to. Get... I, I think it. I think it's going to be really fascinating. Uh, it will be my first time. I think your first time. So we're expecting full assault on all senses. Um, but especially after the Cricket World Cup, which we will come on to talk about a bit later. Uh, Really keen to get a sense of just how dominant cricket actually is in India and the whole conversation about the the industry and also start to uh, get a feel for how business is done, how relationships are formed out in India. So it's going to be an absolute, it's going to be an adventure, but what a fascinating one. What better time to go to India than just days after the national team has lost in the final of a um, a major tournament? Perfect, perfect. Um, David, before we get cracking with the the body of this um, podcast, should we um, do a few fripperies up the top? Um, this this feature that we're working on, which is working out what we're working on here at Leaders um, through the prism of um, a few of our recent LinkedIn connections. Are you up for that? Yeah, sure thing. Shall I go first? Shall I Shall I uh, pick out my phone? Are you going to do me or am I going to do you? No, I'm going to do you. And okay. I am going to have a look on the old LinkedIn and uh, pick out some people that you have connected with recently. Who is Cosmo Lush, James? Cosmo Lush. First of all, Cosmo Lush is the owner of one of the best names in sports and entertainment, obviously. Correct. Um, but he's a um, he's the co-head of games, entertainment, media and sport at um, True Search, which I think is a headhunter. Um, I can't, do you know what? I can't remember whether I got in touch with him or he got in touch with me. <laughs> doesn't, um, doesn't matter at this stage, does it? Doesn't matter. No, but I... Um, I, in fact, I noticed that he's um, he's on a uh, what looks like a fascinating panel um, 
which includes um, various other people that we know, including Craig Hepburn um, at an event coming up soon. So um, that is where that connection has come about. Can I fire one at you? Please. Devanchu Singh. Who's that? Devanshu Singh is the Chief Operating Officer at JSW Sports, uh, one of the big uh, sports uh, bodies, organisations in India. Um, JSW have been doing a great job helping us out with a number of the uh, Indian speakers who we'll be seeing next week, uh, notably uh, a couple of the uh, the major athlete talent that we'll have on stage and uh, they're pretty big players in the uh, in the market and we're as you know in the course of uh, producing this event and planning this event been uh, trying to get in touch with uh, lots of the key people uh, so hopefully we'll be seeing him next week mm-hmm. one for you one for you what about oh here's an interesting name charlotte Locke. Yeah, you'll remember Charlotte Locke, David, because I think you originally um, got in touch with her when she was at the BBC. She was director of BBC. I think she might have been the the, the founding director of BBC Sounds. Um, Charlotte Charlotte also- Locke was on stage with us at Leaders Week at our broadcast disruptors forum that we held at Gfinity Arena in uh, West London um a few years ago now yeah so uh we know her from back then she's very good i i, I remember her she she's sort of a um an audiences and how to reach them expert executive or that's um uh what she was when she was at the bbc she left in 2020 and has done various other bits and pieces since but she's just rocked up at um the john lewis partnership and it's coming up to christmas david of course here in the uk so everyone's talking about john lewis and its advert um including charlotte Locke, um who now works for them um so and, there is that and who you're now connected with uh which is lovely yes indeed one more for um, me one more for you how about alan chu Alan Chu uh, works at the NFL. He's uh, He looks after video gaming at the NFL. And this is me doing a little bit of early outreach. A couple of thoughts bubbling around in my mind for how we can continue to elevate our force uh, event experience, which is happening once again next May in New York. So we're already thinking about that. If you've got any thoughts or ideas and you're listening about uh, how we can best sort of illustrate the continuing collaboration between the world of sport and music, sport and fashion, sport and food, uh, sport and the wider world of entertainment. We'd love to hear them. Uh, But yes, Alan Chu, uh, somebody who has, I think, quite an interesting job at the NFL, who've obviously been in the uh, the video game business for a long time, but we're, of course, in a really interesting moment in the gaming space. Uh, to And so, yeah, keen to connect with him and uh, you know, hopefully jump it's on a call Madden, quite soon. Right? It's all about Madden, surely. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, David, have you got your stop your stopwatch with you? Um, yes, I have. I'm ready to go. Fire it up because I think we need to put 180 seconds on it and run through the headlines. 
You turn around this way, I will turn around that way, and together we will have the full 360 covered. This is 180 seconds of Sports Biz. And let's start at the top of the alphabet in Ahmedabad, where the Cricket World Cup final didn't quite go to plan for the home team, but couldn't have gone much better for the hosts in general. India were comprehensively beaten by the now six-time winners Australia, but new high watermarks were set for attendance and viewership at the tournament. Domestic streaming service Hotstar broke its viewership record four times across the tournament, peaking during the final when it had 59 million concurrent streams at one point. And with 1.26 million people attending games this year across 10 venues in India, the tournament nudged ahead of the previous high at the last World Cup in England in 2019. Formula One's first in-house promotion got off to a shaky start in Vegas this weekend, but the race itself went off without incident, which in F1 is a bit of a mixed blessing. Unsurprisingly, these celebs were out in force. David Beckham was a high-profile guest of the Aston Martin team, which welcomed investment firm Arctos Partners before the race. The US private equity firm has taken a minority stake in the team holding group, not the wider Aston Martin Automotive Group, which values it at over $1.2 billion. And staying in Vegas with a baseball story, because that's exactly what the A's will be doing after the MLB team owners approved plans for the franchise to relocate from Oakland to Sin City, emulating the move made by the Raiders NFL team in 2020. The A's are now due to move in 2028. The next challenge ahead is in financing a new ballpark in the city. Naturally, the team's owner, John Fisher, whose estimated worth is $2.4 billion, will be looking for public subsidies to get it done. In the Premier League, Everton have been struck by a 10-point penalty for breaching league spending rules. It's the most severe penalty ever meted out by the league to one of its teams and opens the club up to compensation claims from rivals. Under league financial sustainability rules, clubs are not permitted to make losses of more than £105 million over three years. The Premier League Commission found that Everton overreached that by £19.5 million in the last three years of accounting. Everton are currently in the middle of a sale process. Elsewhere in top-level soccer, world governing body FIFA is set to sign a deal with Saudi state oil giant Aramco that is said to be worth $100 million a year for the next 10 years. It'll be the largest sponsorship deal in FIFA's history and arguably the largest sponsorship deal ever anywhere in the world. The deal will run up to the 2034 World Cup, which is set to take place in Saudi Arabia. And finally, two more big money fight cards have been confirmed in Saudi Arabia in December. A bill which will feature Anthony Joshua versus Otto Wallen and Deontay Wilder versus Joseph Parker. And another in February when Tyson Fury and Alexander Usyk will fight for the undisputed world heavyweight title. And that was 180 seconds of Sports Biz. It's now the point where we maybe have a little bit of a deeper dive into a couple of those things. You're right. It's time to unpack these bits and pieces a little bit. Um, I think we'll pick out two or three of these stories and try to um, unroll them and explain them in a little bit more detail. I'd like to start, David, in Vegas. We talked a bit last week um, with uh, with Tyson, I was going to say Tyson Fury, with Tyson Henley about um the upcoming formula one grand prix in vegas um and the hype around it what it was going to be about it's happened now you're a um you're a formula one fan as well as a, a formula one um biz commentator <laughs> how do you think it went i think that net 
Formula One will be pretty pleased with how everything turned out. It's always good to finish on a high and the race was good. It was entertaining. Uh, There were plenty of celebrities knocking about. And uh, certainly the crowd that were there on Sunday seemed to have uh, a great time. And that in some ways goes uh, a a bit of the way to making up for what happened uh, at the start of the weekend. I was going to say Friday, but it was also, it was Thursday. It was a complicated race weekend uh, compared to what we're used to. Uh, but the Thursday evening into Friday morning was uh, not a good start with the uh, the track problems. Of course, this, as we touched on in the 180, was the first Formula One centrally promoted race. And I know that there were a number of uh, race promoters from around the world who were on site in Vegas sort of, you know, very quick to sort of pick up on some of the challenges that uh, Formula One face that maybe uh, they have faced previously and been criticised by Formula One for uh, when the boot was on the other foot. Um, In general, though, I think there will be some changes made for next year. There was a lot of talk about schedule uh, for people on the ground. It was very, very tough working hours. Um, So it might be brought forward a little bit next year. Uh, from a timing perspective. Um, But in general, the race is here to stay. It's a 10-year deal. You know, it was a huge undertaking and Formula One deserves a lot of credit for making it happen. The TV shots looked spectacular. The circuit was, I think, better than expected in terms of providing an entertaining race and being a challenge for uh, drivers. So yeah, I think all in all, uh, the debrief will be fascinating and it will be interesting to see what comes of it. But I think F1 can count itself pretty pleased with uh, how the whole week went in general. Yeah. What what are the dynamics in play, do you think, um, in this move from going from administrative body and you know global calendar organizer rule setter um to also having an in-house race promotion arm i mean we've seen this happen in other sports um it happens from time to time in cycling you know the, the uci um tries to set up kind of um uh, not a rival to the Tour de France, but um, a, a UCI-branded event. And there's always some huffing and puffing from various kind of stakeholder groups around the sport. Did, did we see some of that in Formula One? And, um, and and what have they had to beef up to get to the point where they can actually do this themselves? Well, I think in the case of Vegas specifically, it would have been, and, it, and let's be clear, it was an incredibly complicated thing to pull off as it was but it would have been even more complicated to try and farm this kind of project out to a local promoter. And I'm not sure that that organization, that local promotion company really exists in Vegas because it's such a different uh, type of place and there's so many other priorities there. The key thing really in Formula One doing this itself was getting the hotels, the casinos, all the big venues on the strip on Las Vegas Boulevard together bought into the idea that this was a huge uh, generator of revenue in all sorts of ways. And uh, I think once you've done that, combine that with the general Las Vegas uh, growth plan, which seems to be around, you know, we've talked about the Oakland A's. Sport is a, a huge part of what is being built in Vegas to diversify a bit away from the traditional sources of revenue in Vegas. Inevitably, there were challenges in this first year, but I think what F1 has been left with is 
you know, all in all, a really good first event to build on. It will inevitably be better in every respect next year when Formula One returns there. The celebrities will almost certainly be out in force again because it has instantly become one of the races that you need to be seen at. And F1 has also invested in this permanent facility that was the pits facility for the Grand Prix at the weekend that will now be a year round effectively F1's US base in uh, Vegas. It's a permanent facility and they can use that for events to generate additional revenues through merchandise, I would imagine, in the in the medium to, to long term. So there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that they've been able to put together, which will yield genuine longer term benefits than the traditional model of farming things out to a, a local race promoter. And of course, they had control where they wouldn't have had as much control if you'd adopted another model. Indeed. And um, crucially, uh, it'll make for a nice backdrop in um, a yet another series of Drive to Survive, right? Sure thing, because there's always another series of Drive to Survive around the corner. Is there? Yeah, do you know what? The um, uh, the producer of Drive to Survive, the producer of all of these, um, these docs now, the PGA Tour one, the ATP one, James Reese Gay. Yeah. Um, is it Gay Reese? Reese Gay? Reese Gay? Yes. Uh, box to box. Check. Yeah, the box to box guy. Yeah. Um, he's a producer on a very compelling documentary I've been watching on Netflix about um, the Betancourt scandal. Is it Betancourt? Is that right? <laughs> you, you watched it. <laughs> but yes, I have seen, I have seen uh, some promotion for that. It does look big like ta- a great big, documentary. Huge tax and politics scandal in france uh really good really good right should we have a look at uh, another one of these um stories you've been getting your boxing head on do you know what i have developed quite an interest in the uh, the dirty business of boxing and how it all works and i'm mm. quite fascinated by the sort of showmanship element of the big promoters all these mm. press conferences i mean hugely matchmaking right it's It's art it's art and science together completely but also it's particularly over the last sort of few years just been an incredibly tortuous process even to watch and observe and sort of take in and learn about in that the top fights have simply not been made through a combination of lack of cooperation between promoters, uh, but because of uh, financial issues, because simply the circumstances aren't right, and you have to. You, there's a lot to synchronise to get an Anthony well, Joshua and a Tyson Fury in a ring together. Totally, but it's also boxing is, uh, you know, it, it's um, on the one hand, you know, arguably the most Corinthian of all sports. Um, it's the the most elemental. But also the most purely commercial and set up to generate as mo- as much money for one or two you know people rather than big organisations as possible as well. And it's a confusing landscape, but it's being kept that way um, so that the money flows to you know one or two very very narrow avenues. And it's a landscape that has maybe got just a little bit clearer over the last few days with these two fights announced uh, as part of Riyadh season. 
uh, which is, of course, this big entertainment season uh, that, that stretches over many months uh, in the Saudi capital. So we've got two fights, December the 23rd, a mega card uh, featuring multiple promoters. It's really quite the feat. And it turns out that money really, really does talk in boxing because it's that and a lot of it, presumably, that has uh, uh, resulted in um, Eddie Hearn from Matchroom Boxing and Frank Warren from Queensbury Promotions getting together on the same stage and to essentially put uh, a joint card together. Anthony Joshua will face Otto Wallen. Uh, Deontay Wilder will face Joseph Parker in the heavyweight category. And uh, it's as interesting for the source of that money. And obviously that is Saudi Arabia. They're paying a lot of money. Um, but there is a there's an interesting sort of dynamic change that has happened within the Saudi boxing scene in terms of who holds sway and who holds influence. Um, the first sort of wave of big fights over the last couple of years we've seen in Saudi Arabia um, were all the result of a, a promotional company called Skills Challenge, uh, which was led by uh, a gentleman called Prince Khalid. Um, and they seem to have been usurped by uh, the uh, essentially the head of the General Entertainment Authority in Saudi, uh, Turkey Al-Sheikh, uh, who is the new and has almost instantly, as a result of what he's managed to pull off here, uh, become the most uh, influential person in the boxing industry. And it's really, um, it was really sort of interesting to watch this huge press conference which took place in London last week announcing these December the 23rd fights uh, where they brought as I say multiple promoters together uh, the number of times that uh, his excellency was referred to in absolutely glowing terms he stood up and did a little bit as well on the microphone as well although wasn't on the main press conference stage I think there is an interesting point here as well about um, how we talk about investment from Saudi Arabia. And I think there is sometimes a little bit of a danger that we fall into the trap when we talk about all the various reports of investments, whether that's uh, in golf, in cycling, there've been reports about the IPL. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there's all sorts of things uh, happening in all sorts of different sports. And it's very easy to sort of you know, quite glibly almost fall into the trap of talking about the public investment fund and the ministry. I think it's important for us to be really trying to identify and we'll do our best to do it um, for to, to sort of uh, maybe give people a little bit of guidance if we can. Some of the individuals, some of the individual movers and shakers who are, you know, have influence, hold sway in terms of making decisions, unlocking funding. There's obviously uh, Yasser Al-Ramayan uh, from PIF. You've got at the very top MBS himself, um, but there's lots of these other um, figures within the sort of Saudi sports structure, which is developing and changing and evolving all the time. Uh, Turkey Alasheikh is one really good example of, of somebody who is making stuff happen and in boxing terms, genuinely changing the game, it seems. Yeah, and um, he's a very good follow on social media as well, David. Is he good? What what platforms do you follow him on? He's definitely on Twitter. Mm. Uh, I think that's called X now, James. Yes. Um, He's on that, and I can't remember whether he's on LinkedIn, um, but he's an excellent follower. He's, he's obsessed with boxing, and he's obsessed with boxers, and um, he, he clearly knows um, a lot of them, um, and you presume he knows a lot about the sport as well. Shall we finish with a little bit on the Cricket World Cup? Yes, uh, finished on Sunday. Um, I actually I actually watched a few balls of the final. Cricket is not necessarily my game, but... Um, 
Turns out Australia won it. Yes, they did. Yeah, they won for a record sixth time. Um, and they won quite easily in the end as well. Um, it wasn't quite the... Um, it wasn't the game that the Indian hosts would have been hoping for, but the fact that that team, the host team, got to the final was obviously fantastic for the tournament. The the scenes in Ahmedabad at the um, extraordinary Narendra Modi Stadium, named after the current Prime Minister, of course, um, were amazing. You know, just a sea of blue and um, records broken at every turn in this tournament. Um, uh, we talked last week about, you know, probably a record that's been broken is most number of games um, in a World Cup. Um, but, you know, we we threw that in rather flippantly. Um, but attendance, 1.26 million is the best, officially the best attended World Cup of all time in cricket. Um, the, the, um, at the halfway point, the ICC were reporting that the number of minutes of every game um, watched was up something like 40% on the previous tournament in 2019. The final, I mean, Hotstar, the domestic streaming um partner uh, of the tournament of the ICC in India, Disney's streaming platform, broke its record for a number of concurrent streams four times during the tournament. And the biggest peak was 59 million um, at one point during the, the final. To give some perspective, um, you know, that's just under the total population of, of, of England. Um, it is um, the average Premier League game, I would suggest, on Sky is, is looking at kind of high hundreds of thousands, um, maybe low, low millions. Um, it's an extraordinary number. It, it's, yeah, it's absurd. And the, 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 you know, the scale of the potential there commercially is, is obviously gigantic. The scale of the technological challenge that they've managed to come through to do that is also huge. So kudos to the guys at um, at Hotstar and the ICC um, for making that happen. The, the record that they were they were going for but didn't quite manage um, was highest attended final. Um, although yeah, a huge number. I think they had just about ninety three thousand people in that stadium. Um, a sea of blue there um, supporting India. Really spectacular imagery. And and I think you know we talked about Vegas. Will Will Formula One have um, deemed it a success? I think the ICC, looking back at this Cricket World Cup, will definitely have de- deemed it a success. Um, just for all of those numbers that we've talked about, um, India, the most important market in cricket by some distance, having its home tournament and delivering beautifully. Um, and actually, in the grand scheme of things, probably for the best that they didn't win. Um, you know, the fact that Australia won means that there is a, um, a you know, a legitimate, powerful rival for India and in the future of that um, format of cricket, at least at international level, is promising. The a, a struggle that I think cricket is facing is sort of an ex- existential struggle that cricket is facing is the sheer number of cricket games going on in all different formats and the chopping and changing between different formats and there's going to be a reckoning at some point um because you know quite simply everybody agrees there's too much cricket um and the 50 over game which is what this world cup um was played in 
um, has felt a little bit under threat from from time to time um, of late. We've we've obviously seen the rise of 2020, the the short format game that the IPL is modelled on, um, which is sort of cricket that can be done in an evening. The 50 overs is is basically one day cricket, and you know, as a as a as a spectator. Looking at that tournament, I think that the format is is in fine fettle. I actually feel like the introduction of 2020, some kind of 15 years ago now, and the proliferation of it and the number of um, players playing 2020 um, has made for more exciting 50-over um, games. Because players are coming out and playing 50-over um, cricket as if it was 2020. Um, which is sort of boom, boom, baby. It's time for exciting cricket. Um, so all systems go there. I think the ICC's challenge is obviously keeping things fair and um, spread and making sure that it is not just India that dominates um, the sport. But yeah, um, big thumbs up for that tournament, I would suggest. Yes, and uh, you, James, were uh, down at the Leaders Performance Summit uh, last week, which took place in London at a cricket ground at the Oval. And uh, we had a couple of key cricket uh, figures there as well, didn't we? We did, yeah. I mean, I'd say what a success the tournament was. And one team for whom it was not a success uh, was the Holders England, um, who um, went into the tournament with high hopes and off the back of a promising um, summer of cricket um, and this new wave of of, uh, positivity that the installation of Brendan McCullum as the test coach, a Kiwi um, guy who's come in to revolutionise really the approach that um, English cricketers are taking into international cricket. But they had an absolute stinker of a tournament. They went in and seemed to um, not only lose almost every game, but you know, if it's possible, they lost every ball. That, um, <laughs> that it was it was disastrous. Um, but yeah, you're right. I was down at the um, at our leaders um, the sport performance summit last week, which is um, one of the events that we do for our members in the Leaders Performance Institute, where we gather the great and the good from kind of performance thinking inside and outside of sport, and we put on um, days of of learning activities, and it was really great. Um, Mo Bobat um, and Rob Key, two of the most influential figures in English cricket, were there kind of delivering a case study, a case study of success, right, of um, change management lead successful transformation processes. And they were focused on the kind of the, the transformation of English test cricket. They they did acknowledge that it hasn't gone so well. It wasn't going so well in India. This was sort of still during the tournament. But yeah, they were fascinating on what it takes to turn an organisation around um, and uh, how everything that they've been doing as kind of performance director and managing director um, in the, um, the England cricket setup has been done to try to change the mindset. Changing a mindset is the most difficult um, but most fundamental thing in almost any transformation process. And the installation of Brendan McCullum as the coach of the test team is basically the cherry on top of this process. 
has tried to change the approach from one of traditional English conservatism with a small c to one of positivity, basically, um, and kind of front-footedness. And all sorts of different things have, have gone into what it's taken to change that mindset, not least um, ways of dealing with failure, right? The, the reason that conservative organizations are conservative is because they don't want to experience failure or they want to kind of level it out uh, and don't want it to come as a big blow. So play conservatively, you're unlikely to achieve much, but you're unlikely to lose much either. Um, but playing with positivity, doing things in a kind of risk-taking positive way, you could do disastrously, but it's how you deal with that um, that's that's really going to make a big difference. It's very much the vibe of this podcast, uh, really. <laughs> um, the 2027 uh, Men's Cricket World Cup, uh, South Africa, Zimbabwe and Namibia hosting that one. Uh, it will expand to 14 teams. But as you said, a lot of cricket to be played in lots of different forms between now and then. Mm. Anything else that we should talk about, uh, James? Uh, I've got I've got something if you'd like me to share it. What is it? I would like to talk briefly about something that I saw the other day. Now, it's fair to say that of the two of us, you're a little bit more um, in the know about hip hop than I am. But it's uh, the 50th anniversary of hip hop uh, this year. And the NFL and Universal Music Group, I noted uh, just yesterday, uh, have uh, begun a collaboration a content series uh, that will sort of delve into fandom, the culture of fandom, uh, through the eyes and ears and mouths, I suppose, of uh, three hip-hop artists, uh, Rakim, Hip-Boy and Ludacris. Have I got those right, James? I'm going to say yes. Um, and it turns out Rakim is a uh, big uh, New York Giants fan. Hip-Boy uh, is an LA Rams guy. And Ludacris uh, is a big Atlanta Falcons fan. And uh, it struck me that this is yet another example of something that we have been banging on about a lot this year um, through our Force event experience, but also during Leaders Week as well. This relationship, this uh, this closing of the gap between uh, sports organisations and music organisations. And I thought it was just an interesting example of, of two of the most well-known uh, coming together to do something that uh, I think will be quite uh, quite compelling. Yeah, uh, I think you're probably right. Shall we finish with some recommendations, what we've been reading, what we've been listening, etc.? Let's do it. Let's okay. do it. What have you been David. reading or watching, James? <laughs> Nothing, David. I've, I watched uh, <laughs> minutes of the Cricket World Cup final. Uh, actually, I've been... Um, I watched the NFL Red Zone for the first time on the weekend. It is um, good, isn't it? I mean, no, everybody says it, but it is yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, everybody was talking about this five years ago, but <laughs> yeah. um, they were right. It is great. It does seem to me that it wouldn't work in it almost. It wouldn't work in any other sport. So, trying to replicate the NFL Red Zone in a, a soccer is just not going to work. Agree with that, but I do think uh, an Olympic Games Red Zone a gold zone would be absolutely sensational and i would pay for it 
it's not the same thing though is it it's not the the, the sort of staccato nature of of gridiron that means that there is these, these little gaps to move around and give situational context and you're right yeah it's yeah. a great it's a great product it's the thing everybody talked about in the sports industry before drive to survive and do you know what david you've said you'd pay for an olympic service olympic broadcast service did you put your money where your mouth was and pay for um eurosports delivery of the olympics when they took that bet yeah uh, yes i did i was did uh i was a legacy subscriber to their app actually if you must know a legacy subscriber yeah okay uh, i presume that's been ported onto tnt right i believe so yes yeah certainly no longer have access can I make a real recommendation for something that I've listened to this week? Go for um, it. That is, um, I occasionally listen to a podcast called Uncensored CMO or The Uncensored CMO, um, which is really good. As you can imagine, it's um, interviews with chief marketing officers mainly. And it is hosted by um, a chap called John Evans. Um, who's a bit of a marketing guru himself. Um, he runs some sort of marketing measuring service. But he had an interview um, just a few days ago with a chap called Dr. Ian McGilchrist, who is a psychiatrist, writer, and former Oxford literary scholar. Not a CMO, although um, if he is a CMO of anything, perhaps he's a CMO of um, arts and humanities, David, because he has written a book called The Master and His Emissary, um, subtitled The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, which is basically an explanation, modern thinking around how we all as humans think, process information, experience the world. And it's this idea of there being a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere of the brain. And if you're left dominant, you're more into kind of STEM subjects. If you're right dominant, you're more into arts and humanities, literature, poetry, etc. But we all have a bit of each, unless we've had a stroke, for example. Um, but his he doesn't deviate too much um, from the accepted wisdom on um what the left hemisphere does and what the right hemisphere does but he does overlay this theory which is really interesting that eras of history great um kind of human eras sort of the ancient greeks the roman empire the renaissance that kind of thing they all start um and thrive at a level where it, on a societal basis, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere is balanced. So you have just as many kind of advances and um, just as much importance placed on science and data and um, measurement and that kind of thing as you do in advances in um in art, in kind of writing and literature, in theatre, in, um, in that kind of thing. But that each era ends when we swing inevit inevitably to um, left hemisphere thinking. So it's almost human nature to, to move away from art and emotion and feeling to something more measurable, something achievable, data, knowledge, easily accessible and explainable things. And his contention, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, is that we're at one of those points again now um, where, as a society, we have 
we continue to move things away from right hemisphere thinking into left hemisphere thinking, which is a state that is very manageable, but doesn't bring us much progress, much joy, much of anything really other than um, a kind of robotic sense of existence, which is why we're obsessed with AI at the moment, because um, that's the bit that AI is going to replace all the left hemisphere stuff. Anyway, it was fascinating. Uh, it took about 40 minutes for me to listen to, so uh, roughly seven kilometers of running. Um, and uh, yeah, well worth a listen. Very good. Sounds absolutely uh, uh, fascinating. And I, I'd like to think that we're a little bit, uh, we're trying to keep a little bit of the right hemisphere alive on this uh, podcast. More each week. joy. More bit joy. More, joy, more, more of joy. the time. Um, very quickly, would you like to hear the podcast that I most enjoyed listening to this week? Yes, please. I listened to um, my first episode of At Your Service, which is Dua Lipa's podcast, James. Um, okay. I know you're a big fan uh, of yep. uh, Dua Lipa and her music. Well, guess what? She's got a podcast as well. Uh, that's not news because uh, she's had it for a while. But I got served up an advert, actually, uh, which maybe says a lot about my algorithm um, for this particular episode, which was her inviting to her home uh, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. And it was an enjoyable listen. Um, she's got a very nice way about uh, sort of uh, teasing out answers uh, from people. Tim Cook is an interesting chap. And I, I'd never heard him in long form conversation with anybody before. It's quite interesting. It made me think about this sort of, you know, the very, very sort of top echelon of CEOs, particularly the sort of the tech level. But I suppose you could also make the argument in some parts of the sports and entertainment industry as well. It is very rare, if not uh, impossible, for them to sit down now and agree to a long-form interview with the journalist, which is how we would uh, have previously sort of heard their thoughts on this, that and everything. And you can understand from their point of view and their PR and comms people's point of view, there's a, you know, there'll be a ring of protective steel around Tim Cook, which does not give the media much, if any, access. Um, but it strikes me that this is uh, this kind of conversation. And again, in-depth, long-form conversation. Now, look, it wasn't Frost Nixon, but it was a uh, it was an interesting conversation. And I felt like I'd learned a, a lot more about who Tim Cook is, what he thinks about stuff and his sort of attitudes to the big the big topics of the day, whether that's climate change or AI or, you know, some of the big sort of shifts that we're seeing in society. And these podcasts are obviously useful and attractive to people like that in that there's already a huge audience that is attached to Dua Lipa's podcast, uh, but also that it gives him almost a, a ready-made excuse you know if anybody does sort of question why he doesn't uh, conduct a long-form interview with you know somebody anybody he can point back to this this type of thing uh, and so it's I think it's a really interesting example of what I think we're starting to see at the upper echelons of the sports industry uh, as well in terms of the very very top leaders picking very carefully you know, who they're interviewed by, who they go into conversation, recorded conversation with. Um, and there's, you know, there's lots of examples. One I would pick out would be 
Alexander Seferin, the uh, UEFA president, who did a big long-form interview a few months ago, but with Gary Neville on Gary Neville's YouTube YouTube channel, uh, The Overlap. Now, you know, very enjoyable watch, very interesting watch, and Gary Neville did a, a very good job. But it's not quite the same as the traditional journalist interviewee type of format that we had seen previously. Yeah, you're right, David. I think there are more options for these massive hitters in whatever industries um, they're in. Um, And I think there's a move away from the traditional journalistic interview because it's combative um, in its very nature. So you're, you know, you're, you're being probed and and prodded and probed. And, and the whole setup is for you to be defensive. On Tim Cook, I think if you're, you know, the the comms guru behind this and you're you need to get the message out there how are we going to do it i think you choose people like Dua who have massive audiences and have something about them you know can um can deliver with um with credibility um but it's obviously not a journalistic thing i think tim cook has done cara swisher um a few times so slightly more journalistic and I think there is still room for the BBC, right, to do a, an interview on the BBC. You can always, if you're an organisation that has um, that has genuinely positive intention, you should go on the BBC, and then you can always point to that as the uh, the place where you have done a fair and balanced um, thing. Indeed. And it's worth saying that this Dua Lipa podcast, although not produced by the BBC, is being distributed by the BBC. So mm. there's... Yeah. Know, uh, Our guys it, are worldwide. Exactly. It works from that point of view. But anyway, it was a it was a really interesting listen. And you know what? I might give more episodes of At Your Service a go. Okay. All right. Right, David, I think we should wrap it up there. You and I need to go to India to do an event in Bangalore. Yeah. So, should, uh, should we do a podcast there next week? Yeah, let's try and do a podcast there next week. Um, Thank you all for listening and um, speak to you again next week. Ta-ta.